Today, I want to talk to you, I want to kick off a new summer series called But God. Let me explain the premise to, to you as we get started. Most of us, because you're human beings, I'm a human being, we tend to live um, but I lives, not but God lives, but I lives. And those two words, but I, when you repeat them to yourselves over and over, are very, very influential and powerful words. I'll show you what I mean, because I know you've said some of these things, right? I know I ought to get in shape, I ought to start going to the gym, but I don't have the time. I know I should eat better, but I don't have the willpower. I, I need to get on a budget, but I'm worried I won't stick to it. I would love to be more generous, but I'm too poor. I'd love to make some new friends, but I, I, I'm too introverted. I wish I could live with more confidence. I, I, I want to enjoy life more, but, but I worry so much. I'd love to fix this relationship, but it, it's too far gone. I'd love to feel forgiven, but my past, it just, it just haunts me. I, I'd love to forgive him, but he, he hurt me too badly. I, I'd like to get better grades, but I, I'm just not smart enough. I, I, I'd like to get a better job, but I, I just feel so stuck in my career. I'd love to be more confident, but I'm just too insecure. But I, lives. And, and I'm sure, just in that short little list, right, one of them stuck out to you, of making but I excuses, there is no end. But I is not just kind of a defeater belief, right? The thing about the but I lifestyle is that you don't even actually taste defeat or disappointment because but I keeps you from even trying, right? Now, but I, I mean, it's not only fear-inducing, it's paralysis-causing. But I lives, they're fueled by insecurities. And insecurities, you know this, insecurities are on the rise like never before. I, I was working on it this week. Insecurities have become such a big deal, there's actually a genre of jokes about how insecure we are as a people. One man wrote that quote, my wife left me because I'm insecure. No, wait, she's back. She just went to get coffee. <laughs> Another one said that my girl is so insecure, even though she doesn't find any hair on my clothes, she still is like, who's the bald chick? <laughs> and those things are funny, right, until they're not. I was reading a blog this week about it, and they summed it up this way. We're called a narcissistic generation, and at some levels we are, we're told that technology and social media are giving us an inflated sense of self. And at one level, they are. But most of us don't walk around feeling like we're all that great. In fact, there's one underlying emotion that overwhelmingly shapes our self-image and influences our behavior, and that is insecurity. If you could enter the minds of people around you, even the narcissistic ones, you're likely to encounter ceaseless waves of insecurity. A recent survey found that 60% of women experience hurtful, self-critical thoughts on a weekly basis. In their research, a father and daughter team, psychologists, uh, Robert and Lisa Firestone, they used an assessment tool known as the Firestone Assessment for Self-Destructive Thoughts, FAST for short. And in it, they evaluate people's um, self-attacks or their critical inner voices along a continuum. And what they found is that the most common self-critical thought people have towards themselves, this is really interesting, the most common self-critical thought is, I'm different. 
but not in a positive sense, in a negative, alienating way. Whether our self-esteem is high or low, one thing is clear. We are a generation that compares, evaluates, and judges ourselves with great scrutiny. But I, I can't. They can, but I can't. According to um, a, a, a book called, Real, or a study called Real Girls, Real Pressure, it's a national report on the state of self-esteem, seven in ten girls believe they're not good enough or don't measure up in some way, including their looks, performance in school, and relationship with friends and family members. The research contends that these insecurities sp um, sprout from low self-esteem, and teenage girls with inadequate self-worth are more likely to engage in harmful coping behaviors. But it's not just the girls who fall prey to the same insecurities. Teenage boys excessively worry about their body image. And if not addressed, these teenage insecurities, and we've seen this play out over and over, right? They persist well into adulthood. An alarming fact, considering the potential harmful effects of teenage insecurities and low self-confidence. Trouble sleeping, aggression, withdrawal, clinical anxiety, and depression are among the issues that insecure teens are struggling with. When a struggle proves too much for them to handle, teens often adopt dangerous coping mechanisms such as disorderly eating, substance abuse, in reality, only making things worse. And in extreme cases, it can be lethal. But I'm different. I'm, I'm not like everybody else. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm fatter, I'm, I, but I'm skinnier. I'm, I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. Now, here's what's interesting about but eyes. I never realized it until I was working on it. The scriptures are actually replete with those two words, but I. I mean, it's not just us, I mean, if that's any relief to you. It's, it's not just a modern problem. And we're going to look at examples of this over and over in the scriptures in the coming weeks. But I just want to give you two huge examples of but eyes in the Bible. One is from Abraham, right, the father of the Jewish faith, and another is from Moses, its greatest historical leader. Abraham and Moses, they were living but-eye lives. And their, their but-eyes, like most of the ones in Scripture, and most of them in our lives, their but-eyes, if believed, if you believe the but-eye th thing in your head, it has the potential to not just keep, it had for Abraham and Moses, not just to keep them from God's will in their lives, but I has the potential to not just keep you from God's will in your own life, right? But it could have prevented not just blessing in their own lives, but in the lives of generations that come. When you live but I lives, it echoes oftentimes in the lives of others. God comes to Abraham. Many of you know this story. Tells him he's going to make him a promise, a, a covenant. It's an incredible story. Just picks him out of nowhere. He says he's going to bless him, and he's going to make his name great, and he's going to make his family a blessing to the whole world. Now, does anybody remember what Abraham's reaction to God's promise? This is an amazing promise. Does anybody remember what Abraham's reaction is? But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? God, what, what can you do for me? Yeah, I mean, you say that I'm the father of the nation, but I'm childless. In fact, Abraham's so caught up, and we get ourselves this way, so caught up in this but-eye thinking, in this but-eye paralysis, uh, here, here's, here's how he greeted the news uh, just another chapter later. Abraham fell face down, he laughed, and he said to himself, 
Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? What are you kidding, God? I am too old. She's too old. Put it another way, I, that's great, but I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I know the promise, but I. And while Abraham trusted God enough to leave the land of his father and go to the land God promised him, some of you know the story of what happened to Abraham along the way, right? Sarah, his wife, paid the price for Abraham's but eyes beliefs. When he would go into a city, and there were men there that he was afraid of. Remember, he said to himself, well, my wife is good-looking, and if these men find out that I'm her husband, they're going to kill me. But I'm afraid. So, Sarah, you pretend that you're my, you're my sister. Sarah pays the, the ticket for, for Abraham's but-eye excuses. The nation of Israel is caught up in captivity and brutal slavery in Egypt, right, for over 400 years. God raises up a leader amongst the people to lead them out to freedom. He's taking them out of slavery and into freedom. And so he comes to Moses in the burning bush and he tells him, this is what he says directly to Moses, another promise. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And God says to him, I will be with you. Does anybody remember what Moses said? I'll give you a clue. It wasn't, well, if you're with me, God, there's nothing we can't do. But Moses, but I, said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and, and of tongue. But I, I, I can't do that. See, here's the super interesting thing now about how God deals with butt eyes and how he'd like to deal with your butt eyes. Our good, good father, because he is a good father, he deals with our butt eyes, but it shouldn't surprise us that he deals with them in a very different way than I do as a dad with my own kids. Here's what I mean. Parents, when your kids give you a butt eye, oh, but I, I'm, I can't get good grades, or but I can't compete, or I, I can't win, what do we say to them? Oh, yes, you can. Right? We immediately say, no, 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 no. Don't embrace the but eye. Actually, just embrace the eye. You can do it. You're the prettiest girl in school. You're the strongest boy in the class. That's our solution. That's what we hand down to the kids, right? Our way is to deny the but I. If, if, if we were God, what would our line to Abraham have been? Oh, Abraham, cut it out. You're not that old. I mean, Sarah, you know, 90's the new 30. <laughs> right? Don't say that, Moses. You're actually a really good speaker. But God actually never does that. That's the super interesting thing in these stories. In all of these stories where somebody says, but I, God never tries to talk them out of them and go, oh, no, 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 you're wrong about yourself. We deny our inadequacies. But God in the scriptures, when he's confronted with but I stories, he never denies them. It's super interesting, right? It's completely the opposite of what we would do. God never goes, no, 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 Moses, you'll be great at this. In fact... 
Here's where his ways are so different. God tells us, embrace it. Embrace it. Let me show you what I mean. The Apostle Paul, right? We we just got done with our our series where we were working through the book of Acts, looking how how and why the early church just exploded. If you were here, you might remember Paul, who was by his own account, a Jew amongst Jews, a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, right? He's one who came onto the scene as a persecutor of the church, but after meeting the resurrected Jesus, right, after his conversion, he becomes Jesus' greatest witness. As we saw over these last weeks, after his conversion, Paul's making missionary trips all over the first century world and and witnessing over and over about two things everywhere he'd go. He would go everywhere and we'd say, Jesus is who he said he is. He's the son of God. And then he would say he was crucified, killed, dead, and buried, and he's overcome death and was alive. And so Paul's going all over the known world, and he's planting, telling people about Jesus, and planting these little gatherings of what would become Christians. Telling them about this new covenant of God, that every sin can be forgiven for everyone who believes. But if you remember last week, there were always people sneaking in behind Paul going, nah, that's not the whole story. It's actually more than that. It's it's a different story. Don't listen to Paul. He got carried away, right? Everybody was always trying to come in behind him and kind of tamp down the gospel of grace. Now, one of these cities where this is happening is in the city of Corinth. Corinth was, in the day of Paul and Jesus, one of, if not the most important city other than Rome in the world. It was, it was this strategic city. It was at the center. Uh, it was in Greece. It was at the center, the global trade center of the world. It, it was a city, because of that, of extreme wealth, massive affluence. Now, tell me if this sounds familiar. Here's how somebody describes Corinth this week. It was a city described as uber-competitive, status-obsessed, religiously pluralistic, proud, self-sufficient, striving, and therefore often anxious people. Now, do you guys know any cities that are like that? One author wrote this week that Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form, a city where inscriptions were everywhere on everything, boasting about who built it, where the money came from. Inscriptions, somebody said in Corinth, were the social me- what social media is to us today. Who you are in Corinth was who other people said you were. And because of its wealth, Corinth had a reputation of being the most competitive city in the ancient world. If you could make it there, as Sinatra would have been thinking about Corinth in his day, you could make it anywhere. In fact, it was so cutthroat in the city of Corinth, there was an ancient proverb that said, quote, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Or it got expressed another way, in Corinth, only the tough survive. That was their city. It's really our city, right? That was their culture, and it's our culture. And that uber-competitiveness in the culture had begun to seep into this little gathering that Paul had established. In the church, people had begun to, fueled by pride and, and their desire to be associated with the right people. I mean, who you are is who people think you are, right? People in the city, in the, in the church, had begun to take up sides and, and were being divided over who was their apostle of choice. Paul writes to them, he references that, I hear you're you're arguing one another. There's some division that's been brought in. And here's what he says. He goes, what I mean is this. One of you says, 
I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Apollos was an evangelistic friend of Paul's. Another says, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. There's always the spiritual guy in every audience, right? See, it had become for the church in Corinth what it was on the streets of the city. That you were perceived based on who you associated yourself with, right? And so Paul, all of a sudden, is, is competing against, his message is getting competed against by all of these other apostles that are coming in behind him. And it was this church in this city where Paul begins to write, understand what, who, the culture, understand our culture. And it's in that culture he writes the strangest thing that's ever been written. He begins by looking and say, by saying to him, look, I haven't really baptized hardly any of you guys. So to compare me to the others, when they're out baptizing, they've baptized a lot more people than I have. I think I've only baptized two of you. And he goes, he goes beyond that. He goes, I didn't baptize you into my name. I never baptized you into the name of Paul. I wasn't crucified on your behalf, he says to them. And so he doesn't pick up his own cause or his own case. He begins by minimizing his role. And then he goes on, he goes this. He says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The power for Christians, the power of the cross is muted. Your power to overcome in this life is limited. Paul says it's emptied when for you in this life it becomes about wisdom, or eloquence, or self-promotion, or grandiosity. In fact, here's what he said. He's speaking about the culture that's coming into the church. He goes, for the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why is it foolishness to the city of Corinth? Because they're status-obsessed. And the cross is, is humbling. The cross is humiliating. Remember now, you see, you and I see the cross as kind of like a, almost a status symbol. Now we try to see how big we can get them or how much gold we can get them or how many diamonds we can encrust them in. But in the city of Corinth, right, a city that had been dominated and decimated 100 years prior by Rome, that was a symbol of shame. The Savior, the Christian Savior, he's reminding them, was crucified like a criminal. He lived his life as a humble, oftentimes homeless servant. And the message of the cross is the complete opposite of Corinth. The message of the cross has, says there is no such thing as self-sufficiency. The message of the cross is you're all in big trouble. The message of the cross is we're all equal in our depravity, in our desperately broken nature, and that we all stand in the same place in need of a Savior. And Paul goes, look, I know in the city this is going to look stupid. They don't like this in Corinth. Then he doubles down on it. Instead of, instead of trying to appeal to their, their sense of, uh, uh, of self-worth, which has invaded the church, he goes in the complete opposite direction. Again, who would write this? Think to yourself, who would write this? This is Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Here's what he said. <laughs> Remember these letters, most of the people couldn't read, so these letters were people would gather, and somebody would stand up in the midst of the gathering and read the letter. So now... Put yourself, you know, we, we are in similar cities, right? Our, our culture is the same. And so here's a letter I would say that Paul would, would want you to hear. Are you ready for it? 
I don't think you're ready for it. I'm not sure your egos can handle it. But here's what he said. Brothers and sisters, think of what, of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. I mean, this is not the message the church wanted to hear. Paul doesn't say, hey, Corinth, I have to tell you guys, I've planted a lot of churches, but you are the best church I've ever planted. You've given more money. You've had more success. Oh, my gosh, Corinth, you, this church is the most educated, highest-earning, influential gathering that there is out there. And I am telling you, God is blessed to have people like you on his side. It's not what he says. I mean, imagine me getting up. This is how a pastor loses his job. Listen, you bunch of pathetic losers. <laughs> I've got to remind you of who you are. But that's what he does. He goes, look, you're not all at, at all impressive. He doesn't gloss over their inadequacies. He highlights them. Who does that? In the city of Corinth. It makes no sense. In one way, it seems like Paul's almost telling them to embrace the but-eye life. But I'm not much by human standards. But, but I'm not influential, but I, I don't have any ability, but I don't have the right birthright, but I, but I don't have the right DNA. If you and I were giving the speech, Paul gave them, it's likely we would probably, if we, were, if we heard that, right, we would probably shrink back and go to our shrinks and have our counselors try to fill up our cups again with positive thoughts about ourselves. But that's not what Paul does. Instead, he reminds them that the story of those who follow God throughout history has two different words attached to it. We replace but-eye thinking and but-eye lives with two different words that have the power to change everything. Because Paul doesn't say, listen, because you're so pathetic, you need to kind of lower your expectations for what your life is going to be. Stop dreaming big dreams, Corinth. You're a bunch of losers. That's not what he says. He reminds them of who you are, and he goes, but God. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He gives them a whole new way of thinking. And it's only possible when you understand your inadequacies. If you keep telling yourself, you can do it, you can do it, you'll never embrace this kind of life. But he says you've got to stop thinking and coming up with the but-eye life, and you've got, move, you've got to move to being but-God people. He goes on, he says, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let nobody boast, that, or excuse me, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. But God, but God. See, see, they were the turning point in this passage, those two words, but God. They were the turning point in the life of Abraham. But God, it was the turning point in the life of Moses. But God, and you'll see over the summer countless others they were the turning point in Paul's life. And I'm telling you, church, they could literally be the turning point in your life if you believe. If you believe. If you let them be. But 
God. But I, but I, but I, but God. Paul says to them, all those things about you are true, but God. Those things are true, but God will. What's he going to do? I, I know those things. I know you don't have the right words. I know you don't have the birthright. But God will use the foolish, and he'll use the weak, and he'll use the low, and he'll use the despised to continue on the work of Jesus Christ in this world. Because that was who Jesus chose, who he allowed himself to be. By his own choice, Jesus made himself poor and weak and foolish and low and despised, and he changed the world. And you can too. I was inspired this week listening to John Ortberg just go on a passionate rant on the but God life. But God, he says, he says, that means that this world does not get the last word on who you are or what you become or what you might do. The world may say your situation is never going to change. The world may say the lack of education is always going to embarrass you. The, the addiction is always going to hold you. The depression will always defeat you. Failure will always define you. The past will always haunt you. The future will always frighten you. The weakness will always defeat you. But God says otherwise. But God begs to differ. But God, but God, and as you're going to see this summer, that phrase gets used over and over and over in the scriptures. I'm working with some of the staff because, you know, Mike's going to share a little along the way and, and, and some others. And, and we're already up well over 30 stories in the scriptures where God goes, but God. This is the story of the scriptures. At one level or another, the Bible is a giant book of but I versus but God stories. So stop excusing yourself. Stop letting yourself off the hook, whining about your own inadequacies that you get stuck and paralyzed in, and stop rationalizing away the calling that God has on your life. Don't be but I people. Be but God people. And then he concluded what I think is, is the byline of the series, something I think as a church we need to remind each other every week. We should overhear this in the foyer every Sunday out in the foyer as people are talking with coffee. Here's the byline of the series. God is bigger than your butt. <laughs> right? It's just true. You've got a million butts, so do I, but God is bigger than your butt. Just keep reminding yourselves of it all summer because you'll hear yourselves say it to each other. But God's bigger than your butt. Right? It's, it's, it's truth. It's his story. It's history itself. And it can be your story. God is bigger than your butt. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, embrace your butt, I. I know you're not smart or influential or powerful. I know you have this in your past. I know the outlook is not good. I'm not going to lie to you about those things. I'm not going to try to convince you that you don't have those inadequacies. But I am going to try to get you to think differently about your God. Now, here's, here's where, where you have to understand something about the but God life. Leading a but God life does not mean everything is going to work out. But God does not mean that life is always going to just give you roses. But God is not some prosperity message that if we just do the right things or give the right amount of money and, and then the blessings will flow. That's not it. The promise of Jesus rings true. 
In this world, you will have trouble. Remember when Jesus made that promise to the disciples? In this world, you will have trouble. Does anybody know what the next line is? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. But I. Jesus gets to say that instead of but God. But I have overcome the world. But God will have the last word, the final word. He will have the eternal last word. And sin and death and darkness and pain and violence and separation and injustice will not but God. In fact, Paul tries to make it personal. He, he almost finds himself in a competition for the city. This, this little ecclesia he's planted, it's starting to slide back as these others are coming in and, and using all of their influence and affluence to, to try to win the church away from Paul's message of grace. So instead of trying to, to win them over with a list of accomplishments, instead of trying to tell them why they should listen to him and not others, and that's what some of the other leaders were doing, right? They're claiming to be better leaders, more eloquent teachers, they perform more miracles. Paul was a highly, uh, highly educated man. He could have done all, he could have talked about his position, he could have talked about his accomplishments. Again, he wrote most of what you would call your Bible. But he doesn't. In fact, you know what Paul does to commend himself above the others that are competing for the attention of the church? He humiliates himself. Now, why would he do that? Here, here's what he wrote to them about himself. He said, I've worked much harder. I, I've been in, in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was, I was um, pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. This is like Johnny, Car or Johnny Cash. I've been everywhere, man. And in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. You know what the, this is the resume of? This is the resume of a Corinthian loser. These are failures and rejections and humiliation in Corinth. I, I, just, want to make an, I just want you to understand that our culture is no different. Um, President Trump, it is not a political statement. Please don't read anything into it. It's just a cultural statement because he said it, and it just reflects, I think, our culture over, overall. Remember when he was talking about John McCain? And, and John McCain, you know, they were debating if he was a war hero. And President Trump said, I don't want to hear about him being a war hero. I like my heroes not to get caught. See, we're the same. We're, we're no different. This is the same culture that we exist in right now. That was the mindset of the Corinthian church too. And you know what Paul does? Paul goes the exact opposite way, church. And I think... I think so should we. It's a celebration of personal weakness and inadequacy. That's the Jesus we follow. He says as much here. Here's what Paul says. He goes, look, if I must boast, I'm going to boast of the things that show my weakness. When's the last time you listed how pathetic you were to anybody? Right? I never do that. I need you to think I'm a winner. 
See, Paul knows it's not natural to do this. In fact, he's a human being, and it wasn't natural for him. Paul, did, did you guys know that Paul had a, had a problem? He had an ego problem. He, he had a problem with conceit. Did you know that? Paul. Of course he did. He's Paul, right? He's like met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and he's starting churches everywhere, and he's doing miracles. But he admits, I got an ego issue. I got, I got a conceit issue. Here's what he said. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Paul says, look, if all of those things about me weren't bad enough, all of the failures and the rejections and the humiliations, my potential to be so full of myself is so great that God actually gave me another issue. Theologians over the years have debated what this thorn in the flesh meant for Paul. But it seems to be something that was at minimal humbling to Paul, if not outright humiliating to Paul. God gave him something because he knew Paul's um, penchant for ego. God gave him something to embarrass him, to, to humiliate him, to keep him humble. They've debated what this is over time. Some have said it was a vision problem. Others have said it was a speech problem. Others have conjectured that maybe given all that he had been through, it was an emotional or a psychological issue. Maybe Paul, maybe Paul had anxiety. Maybe Paul had insecurities. Maybe Paul was depressed. Who knows? But everybody in Corinth was aware of it. And so as these other apostles come into town and they commend themselves to the people of the church with all of their strengths and their power and their resume, what does Paul lead with? How does Paul commend himself to them? With all of his failures and his inadequacies. In fact, he even tells them that God doesn't answer his constant prayer. He's walking into town going, let me just show you all of my baggage. And then I also have this ego issue, so God has given me this thorn. And so I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed that God would take it away. And let me tell you something else, God doesn't even answer my prayer. How would you like to follow me? Why, why would he do that? Why would he make himself look so pathetic? I'll give you a guess. He's given you a whole list of but eyes. So guess what comes next in Paul's life? And it can in yours too. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. <laughs> I delight in it, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Do you see where your power lies as a church, as a, as a Christian person? Not in trying to be the best version of you you can be, but in understanding in your weakness, Christ is made strong and powerful in you. What, what Paul discovered was so countercultural, it still is. It's so counterintuitive, it still is. What Paul discovers is that embracing his inadequacy, he finds a strength outside of himself. It turns out it's not in there somewhere. He began to rely on and fully trust a strength not within but outside of himself that was so much surer and firmer and stronger and resilient and profoundly peace-inducing. 
that as he started to get this concept, he just bragged more and more about what a loser he was. On and on and on. I have nothing to offer. But oh, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you what he's doing in me. Let me tell you what he has done with me. But I or but God. Now only you can decide what kind of life you're going to live. You have to answer that question. All of us do. What kind of voice are you going to listen to? What kind of narrative will you live out? But what I can promise you is this, and you're going to see it all summer, how you answer that question, but I or but God, it will dramatically impact the life you're going to lead. In a couple hours, after I get done preaching the second service, I'm going to, my bag is in my car, I'm going to walk out and I'm going to get on the plane and go down to Guatemala and meet our first team down there. I, what year did we first go to Guatemala, Betsy, do you remember? 2005, so 17 years ago. 17 years ago, I was convinced, convicted by the Holy Spirit. Let me, I'll just, can I just tell you about my own inadequacies? I was convicted by God that I don't care about poor people. It's a long story, I won't go into it, but I, I started going, hmm. Um, you know, if you, it's an interesting thing, if you ask God to show you your, your, your issues, he'll, he has no problem doing that um, because Jesus gets made strong in your weaknesses. And so I started realizing, you know, I really don't, as a, as a pastor of a church, I should care more about poor people than I do. And I had a little meeting with some friends, and they tried to convince me that I do care about poor people. And I, that I said, no, I don't. I, I feel bad for poor people, but, but I don't care. If you look at my calendar, my checkbook, anything that matters, I don't care. And so I felt called by God to, to, to come to our church that was a Christian Missionary Alliance church that just didn't do missions. We were just, we were very good allies of missionaries, but we just didn't do anything ourselves. And so I felt called by God to get up and give a talk and try to get people to go to what I perceived to be the complete opposite of Menham, New Jersey. Now, I want you to know what went through my mind as I did this. This was 22 years ago. I was not the lead pastor of this church. I was not a good speaker. I, the church had never been on really any kind of crazy missional trip. We were, this was going to a, a garbage dump. And so all of the but eyes were running through my mind, but I, but I, you know. Can I tell you what the biggest but I was that was running through my mind? And this is what holds some of you back, I know it. And it still holds me back, and it's so embarrassing. I almost didn't get up and preach that sermon. And I can tell you what the t title of that sermon was, Under the Shadow of the Wrong Vine, and it was about Jonah. And I was going to ask people to go to Guatemala for the first time. I almost didn't do it. You know why? Because I was worried that no one would sign up and I would look like a fool. That was the biggest worry I had. I, I'd like to tell you I was worried about your safety. But I was worried about my reputation. And I remember si sitting with Jonah at 4 o'clock in the morning as we were getting ready to go on the first plane trip, looking at her, going, are we out of our minds? Like, what are we doing? We're leading these, these people. They're following us to a garbage dump in Guatemala. I have to tell you, I felt completely inadequate, and I was absolutely terrified. And some of you felt that way, too. Some of you, people like Betsy that went on that trip, that first trip. And some of you have gone now over these 22 years, and you all have but I stories and but God stories involved in that trip. And why do I tell you that? I tell you that because look what God can do. Here we are, 17 years later. And we are almost, I mean, there's no houses left to build in the Guatemala City garbage dump because you guys have built them all. We're starting in a new, in a new city. We're building it. We're starting over in a brand new place. You have sponsored hundreds and hundreds of children. 
We have given away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to feed the poor, to build nutrition centers. We have done job training and medical trains. I mean, you name it, and you did it all because you believed at one level or another, but God and not but I. That's just a real-life story that happens. But God is continuing to call you places, you and I. I mean, that's a little bit of my story, but what's your story? I know that some of you are, are convinced, right, in a city, in a culture where it's almost literally no different than the one in the city of Corinth, I want you to understand, with you, with this church, with our town, with your family, with your marriage, with your relationships, with your kids, God is not done yet. And so I invite you in the coming weeks, I invite us as a church in the coming weeks to begin to think differently, to make a different choice about the story that we're going to tell ourselves and the lives we're going to choose to live. What's been your but I story? I would love for you to email them to me in the coming weeks. I want to know your but I story and I want to know your but God story. What is God calling you to? Is it to a person? Maybe it's away from a relationship. Perhaps it's some, to some change in your life. But here's what I know is still true. God is still, listen to me, church. God is still using the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong and the lowly and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He's still doing that. Stop thinking so highly of yourselves. It's going to set you back. Here's the pledge I'd like you to make. I want you to ask God to give you a prompting, a desire, a leading. Ask him to show you something, someone, somewhere to step out in faith. And what I'm telling you, if you ask God to do this, open my eyes to see, God, people, places, persons you're calling me to. Open my eyes to see the opportunities that you have for me. If you do this, he'll do it. And then, you know, the first thing that's going to pop into your head, oh, I can't do that. I, I don't have the influence. I don't have the money. I don't have, but I, but I, but I, but I, but I. And that's where you have to string together the two most powerful words ever strung together. But God. Embrace your inadequacy and experience his strength. And watch, I'm telling you, watch your but God stories build in your lives. Let's close the song.